Let's look at uh, Acts 16, 13 through 15. And uh, some of you are probably saying, uh, I thought we just did that. What, a couple of weeks ago? Was it two weeks ago? Yeah. But there's more. But let's uh, read this. And I'm going to read out of Eugene Peterson's uh, The Message. On the Sabbath, we left the city and went down along the river where we had heard there was to be a prayer meeting. They went outside the walls. There were no walls. We took our place with the women who had gathered there and talked with them. Let's read that sentence again. We took our place with the women who had gathered there and talked with them. One woman, Lydia, was from Thyatira, Thyatira and a dealer in expensive textiles, known to be a God-fearing woman. As she listened with intensity to what was being said, the master gave her a trusting heart, and she believed. After she was baptized, along with everyone in her household, she said in a surge of hospitality, If you're confident that I'm in this with you and believe in the master truly, come home with me and be my guests. We hesitated, but she wouldn't take no for an answer. She wouldn't take no for an answer. I remember being struck by that when we uh, shared that um, a couple of weeks ago. Let's turn over to 1 Peter 4. And the text in the bulletin is 9 through 10, but... As Marcus and I were talking earlier about this, we probably ought to read a little before and a little after to give some context. Stay wide awake in prayer. Most of all, love each other as if your life depended on it. Love desperately. Love makes up for practically anything. Be quick to give a meal to the hungry, a bed to the homeless, cheerfully. Paul, in his first letter to Timothy, he ends that letter by saying, give extravagantly. Be generous with the different things God gave you, passing them around so all get in on it. If words, let it be God's words. If help, let it be God's hearty help. That way, God's bright presence will be evident in everything through Jesus, and, he, and he'll get all the credit as the one mighty in everything. Encores to the end of time. Oh, yes. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. And thank you so very much. We are in the exact text that Dr. John read, and we're excited. It's a bit of a lesson about what we've passed over. And uh, thank you. I do love the bulletin, and uh, I think we're borrowing one thing at Riley Friends from our time here. And besides love and fellowship, right, we're going to take the tear-off portion of your bulletin. We're going to have one in our own bulletin. It's a great way to connect, and I've been uh, borrowing. It's all right to borrow, right? All truth is God's truth. There's one church, and authentically Christian, and then we worship elsewhere. So we're blessed. So by way of reminder, which is a good tool if you're we're in the Bible, we're in the Acts, and often it's called the, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, and that's where we've been for a few weeks. This is not a series. You know what the difference between a, a pastoral series is and just another lesson? The minister's statement about it. <laughs> really, we're not in a series. I'm not into lengthy series because I don't think congregations can bear up underneath them. I did have a friend that spent uh, several years in the pulpit in a small section of Scripture, 
and uh, like a very small section, like four years of his life. I kept encouraging him to get to the next other parts. There would be people that would move through the church and never hear any other part of the Bible. So I don't want to stay in this, but let's go back a few weeks. And if you have your bulletin without the tear off portion, it says right here that we were out from the harbor. We talked about Paul and Silas. They were three missionary journeys and we were about to start the second journey. The first journey was a bit of a difficult experience for Paul and Silas. Barnabas had some thoughts and Paul had some thoughts and I'll just keep it light today. They didn't end pleasantly. They disagreed harshly with one another. And you know what? God created two teams instead of one. And sometimes in our difficulties, we often see division, but the Lord sees multiplication. And another team went out to minister, but it wasn't the way that man had planned it. Without knowing it, out from the harbor, the Holy Spirit had called Paul and Silas to a new continent, a new work. The gospel had never been preached in Europe. There were skeptics about the gospel. Who was this Jesus gentleman? What was the resurrection about? Was Jesus Christ just another ethereal Messiah? Or was He God's one and only Son? So they left Paul and Silas. And you know Luke joined them. You know how we know that? Because Luke wrote the book of Acts. That's how we know that. Now we also know that he joined them uniquely in chapter 16 and verse 11. We see the word, the royal we, right? We, it was they. Up until Acts 16.10, it was they, Paul and Silas. But when we get to Acts 16.11, Luke interjects himself into the narrative and says, we. So all that we're about to study had Paul, Silas, and Dr. Luke. A little bit about Luke. Acts is his sequel. You know what the prequel was, right? Luke. What a good name. He wrote it and he could give it the name. So Luke and Acts is the second 2.0. So we're on this journey. And then the if you have your bulletin, and I love to save bulletins. They're wonderful, by the way. The next one talked about the harbor at Philippi. You know what happened to Paul and Silas. They were there and there was Lydia and they didn't even have a church, which means they didn't even have 10 Jewish following men at all. So they met outside the city next to the river. By the way, most synagogues were by water. Why? Not because they're nautical, because they had ritualistic cleansing and the washing of the hands and the feet, and they needed their synagogues to be near water for that. They didn't have plumbing. So outside the city walls, and there was an inscription at Philippi that forbid any foreign religion into the city that was against the accepted practices of Rome. So they met down by the river, Paul and Silas, and they were going for what we would call a prosciutto, a house of prayer. They found a house of prayer without walls under God's great ceiling, which actually is the best sanctuary in the world. And they met there in the open door next to the river and Paul sat down with Silas and Lydia and the gospel was preached and we had our first continent on the second missionary journey and we've answered an epic question. What will the gospel do on the continent of Europe? It will save people gloriously. Lydia and her entire household were saved. Now Lydia, I'll keep it simpler, she was a peddler of purple. A very difficult color. And I see a couple of those shades here today. And it's regal. And it was a regal color. Now purple was derived from the floor of the ocean. 
It was derived from the crushing of the mullocks and they crushed them together and weaved them into the silk and satin and it was enormously expensive and also forbidden for anyone to wear that wasn't royalty. So Lydia had it going on. She was very well to do, but she also had it going on in a time in the world where women were not really appreciated like they are today. Please let me tell you that the gospel of Jesus Christ in no way, shape, or form has ever pushed any or either one gender down. It has always sought to elevate the best that God had for everyone. And thank God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only named person in the church at Philippi is Lydia. Wow. The jailer didn't get a name. The liberated slave girl, the soothsayer and fortune teller, didn't get a name. None of the other elders in the church of Philippi are named, save for Lydia. God will use you if you bring your gifts to Him, and all the rest is up to God. Paul was experiencing the, I'm going to call it, hospitality of Lydia. It was wonderful. She was known for her hospitality. Now, Dr. John used the word three weeks ago, and I thought it was an interesting transliteration in the message by Eugene Peterson. She wouldn't take no for an answer. Reminds me of my grandmother. She was reading at 93 when she passed away in front of me without glasses. She loved to read. It was the day, she said, it was time to go to heaven. I brought her her coffee, only put one sugar in it. She told me put two more. She fell asleep, woke up, uh, this was in Southport. Did you see that? I said, no, grandmother, I didn't. My mom's the oldest of nine and uh, close with my grandmother. I've always been in grandfather. And she said, there, there was an angel over your shoulder. And I said, I missed it. Sorry about that. She said, I'll, I think I'll be going to heaven today. And she was clear minded and capable, as you can imagine. And then I said, I wish you wouldn't. She said, it's been a wonderful life. And. I'm going to move forward. And then she did, and I held her hand, and I sang to her, what a friend we have in Jesus. My mother was there, the oldest of the nine. No one could really believe it. She's such a legendary person in our life. But we loved her, and arguing with my grandmother was just a lose, lose, lose. <laughs> often say, grandmother, mom only, mom wants to take you. The, finally, the nine children gave up the care of grandmother for the last three years of her life to myself. Can you imagine having nine children and I watched over my grandmother for the last three years of her life and loved every single minute of it? I said, grandmother, where's your roommate, you know, in this nice, issue. She said, well, I like it really cold. I said, I know you're hearty, Grandma. She said, I kept turning the air condition down and she didn't like it. I think I froze her out. <laughs> I said, Grandma. She said, well, that's just what it is. <laughs> I said, Grandma, I think you're supposed to eat this. She said, I can eat what I want, pull the drawer open, and she's loaded with snacks. <laughs> Every dialogue I had in the last three years of her care, I lost, and she would witness to me and tell me about conversions and Falling in love with my grandfather, a naval physician, off to the Second World War in the Pacific, and my mother being the first of nine, and I just love losing those discussions with my grandmother. I think that's Lydia. When she wanted you to her house, she would not take no for an answer. It's actually biblical. 
And Paul went off to her house and the hospitality was renowned. And then Paul was walking through the marketplace one day and he met a slave girl. It's in the biblical narrative of Acts 16. And after a while, he was annoyed. And I can say this like last week. Wouldn't you not want to be in front of an annoyed Apostle Paul? He was annoyed. He was a scholar. He was a thinker. He was an expert in two forms of law. He was a historian. He was a tent maker of all things. He was legendary. He wrote a large portion of the New Testament. And he himself had come from the dark side. So he knew both sides. And he was annoyed and he looked to the slave girl and delivered her from that spirit. Let's remind ourselves when we're in the process of our will, God's will for our lives, deal with the source and not the symptom. He didn't rebuke the girl. He rebuked the spirit in the girl. And it left her. And no good deed goes unpunished, right? You figure the whole town would be excited that someone was liberated from a demonic influence. He was thrown into jail. You remember the sentence we talked about that Paul kept inside of him the whole time that he was being dragged into the marketplace, falsely tried, falsely accused, and then the inappropriate application of Roman justice. You know the sentence? Of course, no. (laughs) Um civinus Romanus. I, Paul, am a Roman citizen, would have stopped it all. Would you dare suffer for the cause of Christ if it would advance the kingdom of God? Have you ever suffered for the cause of Christ only to have the gospel advance through the suffering? And that's what happened. He was beaten 39 times viciously. The Romans didn't do anything just barely. He was viciously beaten along with Silas, raced off to the dungeon, put in shackles, and they were bitter as all get out. And that's an idiom. They were not. At midnight, they were not on Twitter. As I said last week, they were singing to God. How are you when you suffer? Does the good stuff come out? Does the Holy Spirit find ways to ooze and eke out of your life when you're under the throes of suffering And then the narrative turns, doesn't it? There's an earthquake. God's still doing what no one else can do. And don't ever forget that. Do not think that you're in a dark place in your life and you're anywhere shackled by someone's opinion in the dark because of someone's this or that. God knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly what you're experiencing. And when you need a movement in your life, equal to the earthquake in Paul and Silas's story in Acts 16, God will move in your life. We must trust Him for that. The earthquake, the shackles came off. The jailer is about to take his life. He's pre-suicidal. And Paul and Silas, incarcerated by him, listen to him. Let us remember as Christians, we do not lead by title, we lead by influence. Paul had no title. He was a prisoner. And all of a sudden, the jailer listened to Paul and Silas, and he stopped what would be his suicide, and and everybody else had their shackles taken off. And then Paul found himself in the hospitality of who? A jailer, unnamed, eating early in the morning. How will the gospel impact the continent of Europe? Lydia a slave girl, and now a jailer. 
This is where it gets interesting. He's about to be released from jail. And you know, here's where the good stuff is about to happen. You can't keep the way you live down too long. Paul decided to push back in prison. He decided to report back to the people that had falsely accused him, falsely tried him, beaten him, and shackled him, and left him where he was to remind them. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial. That was capital punishment for the person that did that. Yes. To take a Roman citizen and falsely apply without a trial and a beating, which was 40 minus one times, the person that did that was up for capital punishment. So Paul is pushing back. And even though we are Roman citizens and they threw us into prison and now they want us to get rid of us quietly, no exclamation. Paul gets to push back. He does. And then let them come themselves and escort us out of jail. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. God's in charge of our justice and we're not. We might suffer, but God brings about the right time in our life. And this is where we're moving on to the rest of the story in the life of the missionary journey of the second one here. They came to the jail cell and they tried to appease them and they escorted them from the prison requesting them to leave the city. If the gospel can't be ruined by persecution and false accusation and continual malignment The gospel will be lessened because people try to appease us and keep us back from God's will for our life. Are you in verse 39 or verse 40 of this passage? I believe that hospitality is a high calling of God in our life. Lydia was hospitable. The jailer was hospitable. The slave girl was a part of that hospitality. Have you ever experienced biblical hospitality in your life? I serve in a church as a leader where every week we have a meal. Mostly a meal at Riley Friends. And I'm up five pounds as I joke because of it after church. The easiest part of the service is probably the sharing and the calling and the praying and the tugging. And they call me Shep, short for shepherd. But what we're known for is not the clarity on the Bible or the community involvement necessarily. It's the hospitality that's spreading the gospel everywhere. When I'm done with this season of sharing at Brown's Chapel, I'm off to seven other denominational churches in the county to share about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the one another groups at Riley Friends and the impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But my pulpit is biblical hospitality. Lydia would not take no for an answer. How are you in your application of hospitality? Have you let someone else's no define your version of hospitality? Maybe you're discouraged and you've decided that you tried and no, it's not worth it. You're not going to move any further into hospitality. I give you some examples of the call that we talked about last week. If you are called by God, 
I raise my index finger not to point. You are called to know him. Let's not get caught up in bears and bicycles in the church of Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer wrote the book, Knowing God. Our number one calling is to know God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and to grow in the knowledge of faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, if we are called, the call will give us these two things. I mentioned a couplet. It will give you drive and discernment. Do you have the drive to be hospitable in the culture we live in? I know a man that started a small group in his church an hour that way, and for nine months, nobody showed up. Food for 20. Food for 25, I can't remember exactly. Nobody for nine months gave away the food, threw away the food, discouraged. Two-thirds of his volunteers quit because of it. But God had called him to start a support group in his community for recovery, nurture, help, And finally, on the ninth month and a week or two, two rabble people walked in, beaten up by life, and it hasn't changed ever since then. But when he shared the story, he was brokenhearted over the nine months and the loss of volunteers and letting the food go. God give us drive. God give us the drive to follow through on his calling in our life. And God give us, as I point to my spectacles, discernment to see through things, not just to see them through. We must navigate the perils of God's will for our life that are not in His keeping for us. We must avoid things in the calling. Finally, the call helps us avoid cheap grace. What is cheap grace? It's Dietrich Bonhoeffer's word in the cost of discipleship. It's believing that quitting is God's will for your life. It's believing that the jail cell was the last part of his call. It's believing that you don't need to be where you are today. God would not have you suffer. Cheap grace might be someone who is discouraged today. You're challenged. You've had early successes and you haven't seen anything of of recent. That is not God's will for your life. Also, I mentioned cheap grace will give you a go-through. Now that's an old word. My grandmother would talk about the go-through. The calling of God to be hospitable will give you a go-through and you will go through anything necessary to get that even if it costs you everything. And finally, the calling of God on this topic as I wrap this up is Lydia's ministry in hospitality was so impactful. I'll read this in an exaggeration in verse 40. And after Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went straight to Thessalonica. That's verse 17 and 1. That is not what happened. Where would we be in the church if it were not for Acts 16.40? Where would we be today? I'll read it to you. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house. Where would you go? Beaten up? Scarred for life? Jailed? Wrists and ankles bleeding? The best meal you could have from a jailer who was just befuddled by the earthquake almost took his own life and they took off to Lydia's house. And what did they do when they were there? Wine? And when they were met there with the brothers, they encouraged them. 
Oh my, the Holy Spirit is working through persecution here. And finally, and then they left. What did the first century church look like? Well, it had a lady that peddled purple. It had a slave girl that had been delivered from persecution. And Sue's saying, it had a jailer and his entire house in it, and Paul and Silas and Dr. Luke. The church is what God wants it to be, not what you think it should be. It was a rabble group of people. And Lydia, and back to hospitality, would not take no for an answer. There's a biblical concept about hospitality only used twice in the Bible. I can't go deep today, and I choose not to. It's in Luke 24, 29. Jesus is walking on this trail. I'm going to call it a trail. And there are two disciples, and it's the Emmaus walk. And Jesus is walking through the village. He is on his way to a place that God has called him to. He only has 40 days of work on earth before the ascension. He's walking with two disciples, maybe Luke. And all of a sudden, he's about to go all the way through the village, punch through to his destination. And they approached the village, which they were going to, and Jesus acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them, urged The same word that Lydia used on Paul. They wouldn't take no for an answer. Hospitality is what we do on the second, third, and fourth, and fifth time. Not what we do on the first time in our life. Is Brown's Chapel on the edge of explosive growth? Quite possibly. Is Brown's Chapel beyond the walls in Hancock County? Absolutely. Is Brown's Chapel dealing with biblical hospitality on multiple levels and God's ability to grow you and prosper you and help you to reach the people that need to be reached? Absolutely, if we believe in biblical hospitality. Let me wrap this up with where we are with Lydia today. Lydia's ministry is your ministry of hospitality. We need to be about visiting and viewing hospitality as the Bible says, and not how we view hospitality. Here's some examples of hospitality. It's on purpose and intentional. How intentional are you about your hospitality? My parents had a table made for 12. It changed my life. I didn't make the table. They did. I remember when it came into the house, we were seven. It was our job every week to fill the five seats up. It was an assignment we were given. I invited the principal of my school and his wife and their children. I invited missionaries. I invited Mayor McLaren and his family. Found him in front of the post office. It was Friday and I had procrastinated all week. <laughs> Why not? I'm like, well, dad's going to ask me on Saturday who's coming to dinner. And my father and mother would assign us tasks to invite people to the table and we were to eat as 12, not as seven. We didn't always fill the seats up. A lot of the time we did. I I procrastinated a lot. My friend Andy Cross, he was right next door. Andy was often a fill-in-the-blank guy for me. You know, he'd bring his sister. Loved it. you got to have a wingman if you procrastinate. And I learned later in life that I was being greatly impacted by biblical hospitality. 
eminent missionary from Spiceland, Dr. Dana Harding. Big part of my life, a professor and a learned individual. She would be home on furlough and I would make sure to call her and she would come in and she had adopted twins from Swaziland. And I still remember their life story today. The call on her life. I said, Dana, where will you go when you retire as being a missionary from Swaziland? She said, I think in Swahili, I've lived there my whole life. When I retire, I'm going back to live, die, and be buried among the people God called me to. I was 15. Are we intentional and purposeful? My parents were, and I'm the recipient. Are we consistent in our hospitality? Are we one and done? You were offended. Nobody liked you. Somebody accosted you. The cavers got a hold of you. The Christians against virtually everything and said, this is worthless. This will never work. It won't happen. That is what we call the inevitability argument, by the way. Please punch through that. I'll tell you how. Isolate and overcome. I and O. When the cavers get you and they corner you and they tell you that it won't work, isolate and overcome. If we are going to be the people God called us to be, we have to isolate the what we know to be not true and overcome in the power of the Holy Spirit. Be consistent. Next, we need to be forthcoming about our hospitality. We need to let people know in advance that we are prepared to be hospitable. We will be there no matter what. Try that one. It's a tough one. Finally, we are not writing the diary of a wimpy Christian. Our hospitality needs to be hearty. I am momentarily disgusted intellectually, not personally, on how wimpy Christianity has become in the 21st century. Somewhat sickened by it if I were in a classroom. We're offended and we find a new church. We go home and have roast shepherd or pastor. It has no calories in it, by the way. We don't like what's going on and we move on. We are wimpy. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. Our hospitality has Carhartts on, not merely denim. We're here to stay. It's ruddy. It's more than mere invitation. Have you ever heard that one? Well, I've invited them and they didn't come. Well, put them in the back seat of your car and bring them. The biggest space in Christianity unused is the back seat of Christians on the way to church. It's empty. Put them in your car. An invitation is what I call simply someone selling me their opinion on the fact. Don't invite them, bring them. Big difference. You can do it. I know you can. Hospitality is a part of our calling and it will change the world. It will change your church. It will change everything about your life. Hospitality finally has a whatever it takes expression. Whatever it takes. I was praying as we literally closed this and my friend died last week. Randall. He's the publisher of our paper in Greenfield. I met him all the Quakers at a conference and they don't have Wi-Fi. So I'll say this. I met him at a bar and I don't even go to bars. They closed down a business in downtown Greenfield so we could say goodbye to a 38-year employee of Greenfield Banking I served on a board with. I sat there waiting for an hour for free coffee. 30 minutes later, it didn't arrive. And someone said, what are you waiting for? I said, the coffee that was free. I said, if I would have paid for it, I would have had it 15 minutes ago. <laughs> but I'm waiting on free coffee. And all of a sudden, I noticed on my left, a gentleman and his wife were staring. 
It's all right. You can tell, right? I'm all by myself. I've said goodbye. I've loved on everybody. I want a cup of joe and I want to hit it. And then he tapped me on the shoulder. Randall Shields. And said, I know who you are. I said, hi, I'm Marcus. He said, I'm Randall and this is Patrice and we're on our way to Lisbon, Portugal. And I've not been in church in my life, but I know you from the PBS Bicentennial Special in Indiana. You were on that. And I said, I was. And he said, I hold the only hope out for my soul to be faith and soul, which was a bit dramatic, to be your church. I said, we're just a month in existence, you know. He said, it doesn't matter. When I'm back from Lisbon, Portugal, I'll be there at five. Never been in a church as an adult. He told me coming to church that he was, and I can say this, he was an unbeliever. He sent me a message after three weeks saying it's somewhat uncomfortable being the only non-Christian in your church. I wanted to tell him, probably not. (laughs) Dry humor, probably not. But he said that in a message and he sent me one that said, I'm warming up to faith. We'd share entire meals over seven-syllable theological words that I won't bore you with that he grilled me like a hamburger over. Well, now, why we did this and what, what happened here? And I said, you know, in the end, we're going to heaven, Randall. You decide how you want to go if you accept Jesus' work on the cross. That's what you have to do in spite of all these arguments. Last night at 10 o'clock, he texted me. He didn't because he's gone to heaven, but his wife did on his phone. And I'm praying about this, and it's in the front page of the paper last week. And I thought, that's Randall. <laughs> Initially, I thought, how did he do that? <laughs> and she said, at the lowest point of my life this week, without Randall thinking he would come through the door of my house, I knew he wouldn't, but thinking he would, I knew that the sustained prayers of your church and your friendship moved my husband to heaven and you wouldn't imagine how thankful we are for the prayers that have changed our family's life and Randall Shields. I did not lose a friend. (laughs) Heaven gained somebody and I lost somebody. He was a dear man and for 15 years our publisher of our paper. The only church he ever attended in his adult life was ours and we had been open a month And he came to the knowledge of Christ and moved on because of terminal cancer. So I leave you with this. Are you stuck in verse 39 or are you a 40 verse Christian? Are you stuck outside of prison with the citizens against virtually everything and the Christians against virtually everything and they're telling you to get out of town and they're persuading you to move, don't do this, don't be involved in this. They're appeasing you, which is worse than insulting you. They're trying to get you to leave God's calling for your life. And then you move into God's plan, which is verse 40. And then the gospel changes the continent of Europe. But the gospel does not need a coalition devoted to keeping the wrong people out. It needs a family of sinners saved by grace, committed to tearing down the walls, throwing open the doors and shouting, welcome. There's bread and wine here. Come and eat with us and talk. This isn't the kingdom for the worthy. It's the kingdom for the hungry. May God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, get you to verse 40 as people and as a church. And may you prosper into 
chapter 17 and verse 1, and you move on to greater things in your life, that is the calling of God on our life to being hospitable. Don't take no for an answer. 